You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 393 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As you guys will recall, we've talked about how, despite his brilliant success in the Tullahoma campaign, William Rosecrans quickly found himself under pressure again from Washington to do something As far as Secretary of War Edwin Stanton and General-in-Chief Henry Halleck were concerned, Tullahoma was a job half-finished, and they soon reminded Rosecrans that his two primary objectives still lay before him, that is, the capture of Chattanooga and the destruction of the Confederate Army commanded by Braxton Bragg. But during the six weeks that followed the Tullahoma campaign, Rosecrans refused to be rushed and continued his deliberate preparations, convinced that his superiors in Washington didn't appreciate that moving an army through a vast area of rugged and mountainous terrain in the face of the enemy wasn't as simple as snapping one's fingers and wishing it done. No, it might look easy on a map in Washington, but in reality, there were major logistical concerns that needed to be addressed so that supplies could continue to flow to the troops once the army started to move. And even moving the army forward so it could come to grips with the enemy wasn't as simple as it sounded, since maneuvering tens of thousands of men through the rugged terrain required careful planning. Rosecrans realized that a move directly against Chattanooga would be playing right into Bragg's hands, So old Rosie decided to instead use deception and maneuver, just as he had earlier that summer during the Tullahoma campaign. Rosecrans waited until the corn crop was coming in, which would help ease the strain on his already overburdened supply lines, and then he started to get his troops in position and ready to move in mid-August. He intended to use a diversionary force and send them into the hills and ridges north of Chattanooga to make a lot of noise and play upon Bragg's fears that he, Rosecrans, would link up with Burnside and the combined federal force would attack Chattanooga from the north, that is, from the direction of Knoxville. Meanwhile, for his true main thrust, Rosecrans shifted the rest of his army over the Cumberland Mountains 
and moved them toward the Tennessee River in the vicinity of the railroad towns of Stevenson, Alabama and Bridgeport, Alabama, south and west of Chattanooga. There, Old Rosie split his army into three columns, consisting mainly of a corps apiece to minimize traffic jams on the narrow mountain roads. Rosecrans, with his usual meticulous planning, had come up with a brilliant solution to the challenging task of crossing the Cumberland Mountains and the Tennessee River with the goal of forcing Bragg out of Chattanooga. As we mentioned just a moment ago, Rosecrans would move his army over the rugged terrain in several widely separated columns. While those columns moved south and west of Chattanooga, where Bragg least expected, a small force would feint toward Chattanooga from the north and deflect the rebel commander's attention. The stars of that diversionary force were the men of Wilder's Lightning Brigade. There were actually four brigades leading the way for the diversionary force, and their mission was to make the biggest possible show. However, on August 21st, Wilder's men were the first Federals to reach the north bank of the Tennessee opposite Chattanooga, and there they enjoyed themselves immensely. After capturing the Confederate pickets stationed there on the north bank, Wilder had Captain Eli Lilly unlimber his 18th Indiana battery and see what mischief he could do by lobbing some shells across the river. Lilly promptly shot up a couple of steamboats and a pontoon bridge the rebels had tied up on the south bank. Wilder noted with satisfaction the utter consternation of the Confederates, who could be seen running about the town like a kicked-over anthill. When the rebels tried to silence Lilly's cannon with counter-battery fire, the Federal gunners put on an impressive display of artillery sharpshooting and came out on top of the contest. All in all, it was a very satisfactory afternoon of wreaking havoc for Wilder's Lightning Brigade, and after that, they enthusiastically joined the rest of the diversionary force in the game of faking crossings at every practicable site for 40 miles upriver from Chattanooga. August 21st wasn't nearly so enjoyable a day for the Confederates. None of them had any idea the Yankees were so close until they suddenly showed up on the riverbank opposite Chattanooga. That's because the Confederate cavalry had been deployed well out on the flanks, and on the upriver side of Chattanooga, they were watching for any sign that Burnside had come down from Knoxville and linked up with Rosecrans. But now, at Bragg's headquarters, the Confederate commander was receiving reports of enemy activity at literally dozens of spots up and down the Tennessee River for 40 miles on either side of Chattanooga. He was certain that somewhere in all that mass of sometimes contradictory information must lie a clue about what Rosecrans was up to. But the problem was sifting through the many reports and figuring out what was true and what was false. The most intense federal activity seemed to be upriver, which would confirm Bragg's greatest fear, that is that Rosecrans and Burnside had linked up. To counter that supposed threat, Bragg ordered Simon Bolivar Buckner, 
who had already abandoned Knoxville in the face of Burnside's oncoming Yankee horde, to now fall back to the Hawassi River, which flowed down off the Blue Ridge and emptied into the Tennessee about 35 miles above Chattanooga. Bragg also shifted more of his infantry in that direction. As the rebels covered all the possible crossing points above Chattanooga, they were kept on their toes by those Federals Rosecrans had sent out to divert their attention. With his army concentrated between Chattanooga and the Hawassi, Bragg was ready to counter the dreaded Yankee upriver movement. But by August 25th, he had become painfully aware that he had another problem. Namely, he'd lost Rosecrans. At first, everything seemed to be playing out just as he'd anticipated, but then the upriver Federals, although very noisy and active, never actually moved to cross the Tennessee. Miscellaneous reports of other Federal activity continued to trickle in to Bragg's headquarters, but it became increasingly obvious that he didn't have a true picture of what Rosecrans was up to. All Bragg knew with any certainty was that out there, somewhere, to the north or east or west, the enemy was maneuvering with the goal of capturing Chattanooga and destroying his army. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. For Bragg, pulling out infantry downriver from Chattanooga and transferring them upstream turned out to be a most unfortunate decision because downriver, below Chattanooga, was where Rosecrans was making his move. Along the north bank of the Tennessee River, 
or marching down to the river through several of the valleys that came down out of the mountains, were seven divisions of George Thomas's 14th Corps and Alexander McCook's 20th Corps. At the same time, the men of Thomas Crittenden's 21st Corps were advancing through the mountains farther north. In a widespread movement that had McCook's southernmost division, sometimes as much as 75 miles from Crittenden's northernmost division, the Army of the Cumberland made its way to positions along the north bank of the river from Shellmound, Tennessee to Bridgeport in the northeast corner of Alabama. In other words, the Federals were closing up on the river to the west of, or downriver from, Chattanooga. Though Rosecrans had deceived Bragg, that didn't mean that the Federals' crossing of the Tennessee was entirely without frustrations. Although the Army was using four different crossing sites, it nevertheless had only a very limited number of boats and bridges, and congestion and delay was inevitable. Still, by September 4th, the river crossing was complete. Rosecrans had successfully moved the Army of the Cumberland across the Tennessee, along with enough ammunition to fight two major battles and enough food to last the better part of a month. Old Rosie now set to turn Bragg out of Chattanooga, just as he had done to the Confederate commander in front of Tullahoma earlier that summer. Rosecrans may have gotten his army across the Tennessee, but now maneuvering to turn Bragg out of Chattanooga would be complicated by the mountainous terrain. Specifically, three long ridges lay between the Federals and the Rebels' supply artery, the Western and Atlantic Railroad. The first obstacle was Sand Mountain, a high, broad plateau featuring rough roads and few sources of water. Beyond Sand Mountain lay a narrow valley and then a much more formidable barrier, Lookout Mountain. Narrower than Sand Mountain, Lookout was also higher and steeper and, worst of all, rimmed with a 50-foot rock wall around its top called the Palisades. Crossing Lookout Mountain would be extremely difficult for the Federals, and for the wagons and artillery, it would be impossible except at a few gaps, which weren't really gaps at all, but simply breaks in the palisades through which twisting wagon roads climbed to the summit. The third ridge was Missionary Ridge, which was rather tame compared to Lookout Mountain, but still impractical for wagons, except at the gaps, real gaps this time, and more numerous than on Lookout. The bottom line was that the terrain presented Rosecrans with a problem that had no good solution. To keep the army in a concentrated mass would mean endless delays as the columns snaked through those few narrow gaps, and by that time Bragg would almost certainly have responded and plugged the gaps, taking up defensive positions that would be a dream for him and a nightmare for Rosecrans. If, on the other hand, Rosecrans made use of several widely spaced routes, then his corps would be far from one another. In other words, they would be out of supporting distance of one another and vulnerable should Bragg detect the movement and respond aggressively. 
Still, this course of action offered the greatest rewards as far as maneuvering Bragg out of Chattanooga, and Rosecrans didn't hesitate to choose it. He sent Crittenden's corps on the most direct route toward Chattanooga, following the railroad through the gap that separated Sand Mountain from Raccoon Mountain, which was a crescent of high bluffs towering over the south bank of the Tennessee. Once past Sand and Raccoon Mountains, Crittenden would move into the valley at the western foot of Lookout Mountain, where he was to take up position at the crossroads town of Wahatchee. From there, he could threaten Chattanooga via the north end of Lookout Mountain, where the mountain sloped down abruptly from its spectacular peak to the banks of the Tennessee. Hugging the curving riverbank and wrapping around the northern foot of the mountain was the railroad and a wagon road. Rosecrans reasoned that if the rail line and wagon road could get into Chattanooga that way, so could Crittenden's 21st Corps. Meanwhile, Thomas's 14th Corps would take several roads over Sand Mountain. Then the columns would unite in Lookout Valley and march south to cross the mountain by way of Stevens Gap, 24 miles south of Crittenden's position. McCook would swing even farther south, striking Winston's Gap, 42 miles from the river and Crittenden, and 18 miles from Thomas. Once McCook got his 20th Corps over Lookout, Rosecrans wanted him to push even further to the southeast, aiming for Alpine, Georgia. It was a daring move, but Rosecrans was reaching for the throat of the Confederacy's second largest army, and certain risks had to be accepted. Rosecrans had unbounded confidence in the soldiers of the Army of the Cumberland, and they felt the same way about him. As the three corps swung south and east on their different courses, the men found the march very much like those that had come before in the two and a half weeks of the present campaign, that is, little or no contact with the enemy and simply more expanses of beautiful scenery. From the gap between Sand and Raccoon Mountains, one of Crittenden's men declared, quote, The view is a magnificent one. One can see to the north and west miles upon miles of country, stretching out until it is lost in the blue, misty atmosphere. The river, as it winds along in its serpentine course, looks like a silver thread reflecting the warm rays of the, th of the sun, a thing of beauty in the distance. As it turned out, Rosecrans' widely separated columns presented more potential avenues of advance than the Confederates could effectively cover. Bragg complained of how, quote, a mountain is like the wall of a house full of rat holes. The rat lies hidden in his hole, ready to pop out when no one is watching. And that's just what the Yankees did. Before Bragg could react to and counter their movement, Rosecrans Federals had topped Lookout Mountain and were flowing down the eastern side. By that time, there was nothing Bragg could do to hang on to Chattanooga. If he had simply stayed where he was, he would have been offering his army up to be trapped, just like it had happened at Vicksburg. So, to escape the trap, Bragg put his troops in motion, marching south out of Chattanooga and out of Tennessee. From the crest of Lookout Mountain on September 8th, Rosecrans and the men of his center column, with which he was riding, saw, quote, 
Far off to the east, long lines of dust trending slowly to the south, end quote. And old Rosie knew that Bragg was retreating. Determined to catch Bragg this time, Rosecrans ordered his three corps to press forward rapidly in the same widely spread formation they had been using. Again, it was a risk and a bit reckless to advance in such a way, since the different columns wouldn't be within supporting distance of one another. But again, it was a risk Rosecrans was willing to take. If all went well, he reasoned, he would catch Bragg's army strung out in headlong retreat, demoralized and vulnerable, and this time he would tear it to shreds. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Chickamauga Campaign, A Mad, Irregular Battle by David A. Powell. David Powell's name will be very familiar to you guys by the time we're done with Chickamauga. We've already recommended his book, The Maps of Chickamauga, but that was just one of a handful of his books that we have sitting here. This episode's recommendation, The Chickamauga Campaign, A Mad, Irregular Battle, is just the first of three excellent volumes that span the entire campaign, and we really can't praise it highly enough. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. This is another episode that we recorded in advance, since as we release it, we'll actually be out of town and traveling to visit family. So we regret we can't thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade by name and those who have given donations recently, but we'll get back to that soon. And in the meantime, please just know how much your support of the podcast means to us. And for all of you, thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.